Well, thanks so much, Chris, and uh, it's just been a real delight to be uh, kind of back on my old stomping ground. I like being up in the northwest. Uh, I think I said that I lived up in uh, Deloraine, where I grew up, but I also went to school in Devonport. Um, and my, as I said, my dad used to work here in La Trobe, so it's very good to be on familiar ground. So if I don't get a chance to actually see you after now and before you scurry off to your homes and as I scurry off to mine, uh, look, can I just say thank you so much for having me here today. Can I say right now, though, that we are actually, we've got a fight on our hands and we've got a fight on our hands on two fronts because we are full. We are full of the Word of God. Uh, hasn't it been great to be able to feast on these brief but profound passages from God's words this morning. I feel full, I hope you feel full, not just of content but also of great hope but also of some challenges. So we're full in that sense. Now we've got to do it all over again for one more sermon. So we've got to fight on our hands. But secondly and much more practically, we're also, also just full of lunch. Uh, it's 2 o'clock, it's 2.10, you've had warm soup, you've had beautiful sandwiches, and now you've got to listen to me burble on for another 40 minutes. I'm just thankful it's cold in here because uh, if it was warm, I wouldn't stand a chance. So I, for one, am very grateful the heaters have broken down. Let's pray, though, that as we do this fight for the next 40 minutes, that we'd win out. More to the point that God would win out. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, uh, we wanna, I want to thank you so much for the day that we've had today. Thank you for how you've reminded us that although the gospel looks foolish and we look foolish, uh, you're wise and in our foolishness your wisdom comes out and that's what we want to be about. Father, as we think finally now about what it means to be proclaimers of your gospel, whether we preach for a living, whether we preach for a hobby or whether we don't preach at all, uh, but we uh, share what we can of the gospel with our friends and neighbours, Father, we pray you would help us to learn what it means to be foolish preachers, teachers, sharers of Jesus and be encouraged and challenged by that too. Amen. Well, let me read to you a quote that I think sums up a lot of modern sentiment uh, about the youth of today. We live in a decaying age. Young people no longer respect their parents. I'm waiting to see the nods. They are rude and impatient. They frequently inhabit taverns, taverns and they have no self-control. We live in a decaying age. Young people no longer respect their parents. They're rude and impatient. They frequently inhabit taverns and they have no self-control. I think for a lot of people that actually sums up much common sentiment about the youth of today. There's a twist though. That quote doesn't come from a recent letter to the editor. It's actually an inscription found on the inside of a 6,000-year-old Egyptian tomb. I think it's fair to say that some problems have existed in every age. Well, friends, the same thing could be said about the modern culture of celebrity preachers. I think it seems like there's never been an age where the phenomenon of not disobedient youth but celebrity preachers has been such a problem. I mean, in the internet age, everyone can access the world's best preachers at the click of a button. And some of these preachers are being listened to an awful lot. Um, it's been estimated that George Whitfield, whom I've already mentioned, 
and who was one of the most prolific itinerant preachers in the history of the world, over 34 years of ministry, preached in person to over 10 million people. Now, my mind just boggles at those kind of figures. 34 million people. It took him 34 years to do it. Well, more people downloaded a John Piper sermon than that last year. That's the age that we live in, in the age of the internet. Some preachers now have huge followings, and not just in numbers, but huge in devotion. Now, that is great in some ways. I'm delighted that God's servant, John Piper, can be used to serve not just the people in his church, but the wider body of Christ, not only in the United States, but also around the world. And I'm just using him as an example. That's fantastic, but it also has problems, doesn't it? Internet preaching disengages the preacher from the listener. As John Piper himself has once said, he can preach to someone through the internet, but he can't love them. He doesn't pray for me when I'm listening to him. He doesn't know who I am. And sometimes we can become consumers as listeners to these kinds of preachers. They're so good, but we just stuff ourselves full, like we're at a preaching Bay Marie and we don't quite know when to stop. It can feed a consumer mentality amongst this, where preaching just becomes another form of entertainment, just cheaper and less violent and, or explicit than TV. There can be problems with celebrity preachers where it actually just becomes another way of Christians disagreeing over things. Oh, who do I like best? It can be a problem when the celebrity preacher at some point falls and we can all think of examples of that. You see, in the internet age, there are wonderful things about celebrity preachers but there are also terrible things, so much so that it feels like there's never been a time in history when celebrity preachers have been such a problem or has there? See, people always think that there's never been a worse age than their own, much like the writers of that inscription in the Egyptian tomb. But as we read 1 Corinthians, we actually see exactly the same problem of celebrity preachers in Corinth. The church has fallen into the idolatry of celebrity preachers, in fact. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Now when you actually look at the church in Corinth, that actually shouldn't surprise us, I don't think. It seems to be very full of gifted people, especially in the area of speech and the area of knowledge. Listen to verse 5 of chapter 1. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. This is a church that doesn't lack any spiritual gift, according to verse 7 of chapter 1. So it's not surprising that they set a high value on preachers and have a tendency to make celebrities out of them. But Paul refuses to play that game, even though he's one of the celebrities listed. He refuses to try and preach impressively and gain a following. And he refuses to do so for this simple reason, that to do so would empty the cross of its power. Listen to 1 verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
Just think about that. That's a big call, isn't it? That's a big warning to anyone wanting to preach wisely or eloquently. Because whatever he means by those words wisely and eloquently, and we're going to unpack them in the next half hour, it must be something pretty powerful. Because he says to do so could empty the cross of Christ of its power. And as we've seen today, the cross of Christ is the power of God for salvation. So whatever wisdom and eloquence is, according to Paul, we must avoid it like the plague or our preaching will be futile. In other words, if we're going to preach, we must be foolish preachers. Our last two talks were the foolish gospel and the foolish church. Well, today we're closing with this topic of the foolish preacher. And it brings me to my first point, which is simply, and it's in there in your notes, the foolish preacher. There is something about the very nature of the gospel that affects the way Paul preaches it. Have a look there in 131, to, um, and we'll just move on in. So 131, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see Paul's logic. Because he can boast only in Jesus, that affects the way he teaches about Jesus. The content of the message affects the way he communicates it. And I think it does so in three important ways. In its content, in its demeanour and in his manner. First of all, the content. Come with me back to chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As you'll do two more times in this passage, he has a simple comparison or contrast rather something he didn't come with and then something he does he didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom he said it there in verse 1 now as we saw in the first sermon when he's talking about human wisdom there he doesn't mean intelligence as though it's some kind of virtue to be unintelligent but what he means is humans trying to find God under their own steam that's what he means by wisdom there using wisdom or human traditions or philosophical reasoning to figure God out for themselves, to drag him down from heaven by his, shoe, by his shoelaces and spread him out on a dissecting table and pick over him as though he was some animal for dissection. No, he's not going to do that and he's not going to do it because it's doomed to failure. That's where the wise or the teacher of the law or the philosopher have gone wrong, according to 1 verse 20. Now where are they? No, they're nowhere because you can't reach God that way. The world through its wisdom did not work God. Did not know God. So Paul doesn't pretend that you can. He's not out there to simply offer one more opinion on how to know God because he just knows that you can't do that. That's why he doesn't come with human wisdom. What does he come with? What's right there in verse 2? Christ crucified. And from what we've seen this morning, it shouldn't surprise us that that is how he summarises his entire preaching ministry. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul the day before he died how he would summarise the content of his entire ministry, 
I can tell you now exactly what two words he would use. And they're the ones we've just read. Christ crucified. You see, Paul doesn't come with impressive sounding philosophical theories, human wisdom. He doesn't come with theories, but with facts. Not philosophy, but history. Because that at base is what the gospel is. It's the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. You see, this is something I think as Christians, particularly in a post-enlightenment age, that we often forget. The gospel is first and foremost a piece of news. It's something that happened and that we now tell others. Christians are much more like journalists than we are like philosophers. Actually, we're much more like postmen or postwomen. We've been given a message and it's our job to deposit it in people's letterboxes. But what we're delivering is not a theory but news, a piece of facts. The gospel, therefore, is not something that we try and sell, first and foremost. No, first and foremost, it's something we simply tell. Of course, once we have told people the gospel, that news will need some pretty rigorous defending. And some of that will look very much like theory and philosophy and that's fine. But first and foremost, we've got to remember that the gospel is good news about the life and times of Jesus and in particular the cross. I think that's actually really encouraging for those of us who feel nervous about evangelism. I think we think that before I could possibly share the gospel with a friend of mine, that I have to have all of the philosophical arguments down pat because if I don't, then I'm going to get shot down. Now, of course, they're helpful, but they're not essential because, again, the, the gospel's not an argument. The gospel is a story. It's a piece of news. It's like me telling you about what happened in the newspaper the other day. It's in the same kind of species. You're talking about what happened. Of course, it's good to have arguments up your sleeve, but it's not essential and you would actually be surprised how effective it is. I've got a friend of mine, Luke Hansard. He ministers amongst international students at the University of Tasmania um, down in Hobart. Um, many of whom have never heard of Jesus, let alone what he did. And you would be amazed at how many of them are simply just curious about who Jesus is. And so Luke very happily tells them and they accept it. Now it's not because international students aren't critical thinkers, it's not because they're any less intelligent than local Tasmanians, but it's just because there is actually some power in simply telling people the gospel. It is a story that is believable in itself. Sometimes it will need defending, but sometimes it won't. What a great comfort for those of us who get tied up in knots before we ever think about sharing the gospel with someone. No, it's a story and we can share it. But when we do tell that story, we've got to get the punchline right, don't we? We've all heard a joke that got fumbled at the finishing line, haven't we? You were listening to the joke, you were really enjoying it and you thought, this is, this is going to be so good. And then for whatever reason, the person who was telling you the joke mucked up the punchline. It's so deflating, isn't it? I've done it before. I give away the punchline in the first sentence and only realise at the last and go, oh, actually, yeah, you already know how this joke ends, don't you? This is pretty lame. Well, the cross is the punchline of the gospel. Don't fumble it. If we're going to be telling people the gospel, we've got to be focusing on the cross. 
And that's a good reminder for all of us who are involved in Bible teaching of any sort. If you're a Bible study leader or you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a preacher or you do the kids' talks in your church, if you have kids' talks at church, let me ask you this question. Do you get to the cross? Do you get there? When you're dealing with the disobedient in your church, do you flay them with commands? Or do you remind them of the cross and what Jesus has done for them there? When you're dealing with people who are facing terrible suffering, do you serve them up tea and sympathy? Or do you comfort them with the hope held out on the cross? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you need to give a pat recitation of the, the cross every single time. That will seem awfully forced. You don't have to give a description of what happened on the cross in every conversation with a Christian or otherwise, but it must form the backbone of what we do because what is preaching? It's Christ crucified. The way we preach will be affected in our content. It will also be secondly affected in our demeanour. Look there at verse 3. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. People have spilled a lot of ink trying to work out what exactly Paul means by his weakness and his trembling. There are loads of possible candidates for Paul describing himself as weak. Some people have thought it's because he was quite a sickly man. Maybe he was ill. Now, we know he wasn't well. We know from 2 Corinthians, the back end of that letter, that he had something that he called his thorn in his flesh and people have spent a lot of ink wondering what that is. Has he got bad eyesight? Has he got epilepsy? Has he got whatever? We just don't know, but maybe it was an illness. Maybe that's what made him weak. Was he weak in that he worked in a menial trade and was looked down on by his snooty neighbours? Although he was highly trained and intelligent, he spent a lot of his time post-conversion as a leather worker. Maybe that's what he means by his weakness. Was it because he was poor? I mean, we do know that for much of his ministry, Paul wasn't wealthy. He says in 1 Timothy 6, if I have food and clothes, that will be enough. Well, I think that assumes that there were times when food and clothes were all Paul had. He's not rich. What's it to do with the fact that, frankly, he wasn't that imposing a figure physically. Listen to this second, second, second century description of Paul. A man small in size, with a bald head and crooked legs, in good health, with eyebrows that met and a rather prominent nose. I love the fact that it mentions that Paul, the Apostle Paul had a monobrow. I just love that. He's clearly not that much of a looker. Well, look, it's hard to tell. What is it that makes him weak? Illness, menial trade, poverty, not that great looking. Well, it's hard to tell, but to be honest, the fact that we have so many options to choose from says something in itself. He's not a strong or impressive looking guy. He came in weakness. But he came in weakness, but he also came in trembling. And I think that's the far more important factor. Because what does Paul mean that he came in trembling when he preached? Who was he trembling before? Was he trembling before his listeners? Well, you never get that impression from Paul. No, he was trembling before his listener. He was trembling before God. Before he came and shared the gospel with the Corinthians, they were without hope and without God in the world, 
you were faced with an audience of people whom you knew, if they didn't understood what you said, would go to hell, I think you'd tremble too, wouldn't you? And yet that is precisely the audience we do have. Spurgeon put it this way, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. They are scary words, aren't they? They're the words that made Paul tremble. He came in weakness. He came in fear and trembling. But finally, it also affected the manner in which he spoke. Look there at verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Can you see again the contrast he's putting up again? It's the third, it's the third one. First of all, he again tells you what he didn't come with. He didn't come with wise and persuasive words. Again, we're not saying that Paul was stupid or he was unpersuasive. I mean, he must have been persuasive to some people or people wouldn't have become Christians. What it means is that he didn't rely on empty rhetoric. He didn't try to be clever for cleverness' sake, but rather he told them the gospel plainly. And when he says this, we know he's actually not just being modest. Contemporary accounts, certainly one from 2 Corinthians, tells us he really was an unimpressive speaker. I'm sure all of us here have heard a preacher. I have, I've been that preacher who was just boring. I mean, honestly, my first ever sermon, uh, it was just appalling. It went for, I was 21, I thought I was amazing. The sermon went for 55 minutes. It barely mentioned the Bible. It was a, you should have seen the manuscript. When I hauled it up into the pulpit, people thought it was the Bible. It went on, I mean, it went forever. It just went, like, children grew up during my sermon. It was not good. But do you know what the one hope I did have? I never killed anyone. Everyone, they might have felt dead when they left, but they still left alive. Paul killed a guy. You look in Acts chapter 20, it talks about how he's upstairs in a room and it's hot and there's this poor beggar called Eutychus who's sitting on the window. How stupid sitting in an open window. They hadn't invented glass by then. And it says Paul was, I don't, I don't, think it, I don't know what the Greek for burbling is, but I think that's what it means. Paul was burbling on and on and on and on and on and on. It was getting later and later and later. It was really hot. And Eutychus stretches ooh, and just leans back. Falls to his death. At least that never happened to me at St John's. Having said that, Paul was an apostle and so God did use him to raise Eutychus to life. Uh, probably why it still gets in the, in the Bible would have otherwise been swept under the carpet, that particular story. But he wasn't actually that impressive. But Paul would rather speak plainly but clearly than in an elaborate and impressive manner but say nothing. Listen to Spurgeon again. I want you to roll this quote round in your mouth. It's so good. It is infamous to ascend your pulpit and pour over your people rivers of language, cataracts of words, 
in which mere platitudes are held in solution, like infinitesimal grains of homeopathic medicine in an Atlantic of utterance. Better far give the people masses of unprepared truth in the rough, like pieces of meat from a butcher's block, chopped off anyhow, bone and all, and even dropped down in the sawdust, then ostentatiously and delicately hand them out upon a china dish, a delicious slice of nothing at all, decorated with the parsley of poetry and flavoured with the sauce of affectation. What a takedown. No, Paul didn't come with wise and persuasive words. What did he come with? He came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Does he mean miracles? No, he doesn't mean miracles. He said that's not what he gave them. Now, the demonstration of the Spirit's power is that when Paul spoke, people realised his words were not his own, they were from God. They realised they were hearing something from God. They recognised the Gospel for what it was. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Our Gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. That is, when Paul preached plainly, simply, Christ crucified, people heard it and it did something to them. Despite it sounding plain, it had an impact and it's the impact that counts. The first century uh, Roman, Plutarch, uh, compares two of the great orators of his age in the first century. Cicero, who was a Latin, and Demosthenes, who was a Greek. Cicero was renowned as one of the great orators of his age. He was the leader of the Roman Senate. His speeches were famous and they were incredibly ornate. People would come from miles around to listen to Cicero speak. It was like the release of a, a great new TV show on Netflix or a great movie. You were waiting for it to come out, Cicero's next speech. Demosthenes, not so highbrow. He was a, he was a Greek general. He spoke very roughly, much more that chopped up bit of meat in the sawdust that Spurgeon's talking about. Listen to how Plutarch describes the effect of their two speaking styles. When Cicero speaks, people say, how well Cicero speaks. When Demosthenes speaks, people say, let us go to war. That's preaching. Not what a wonderful sermon. Let us go to war. If Paul came to speak at your church, you would be underwhelmed. He just wasn't that impressive a speaker. You wouldn't come away with much impression of him at all. But you would come away with an overwhelming impression of Jesus. You've probably looked at family photo albums, uh, either the old-fashioned type in a book or you scroll through you know, phones or whatever on your iPad, wherever you keep your family photographs. If your family is anything like my family, there's a fairly even spread of people represented in your family in the photographs. Oh, there's one of Uncle John or there's Dad or there's Mum or there's Trudy or whomever. But isn't it always the case that there's always one person who only ever seems to turn up in a few of the photographs they, they always seem to miss, somehow, when the family photograph's being taken, they always seem to miss out. 
Now, why is that? Is it because that's the family member that who, frankly, is a bit on the nose and you've kind of fallen out of and when the, when the family photograph's being taken, you just kind of conveniently don't tell them so they miss out? Well, it might be, but I hope not. Isn't it true that more often than not, the person who never turns up in your family photographs doesn't do so because they're the one behind the camera. They're shy. It's not, that they're part, it's not that they're not part of the family. It's that they always want to direct their attention away from themselves and to you. Well, that's Paul. He doesn't want people coming away from his sermons saying, what a great preacher, but what a great saviour. So he doesn't draw attention to himself with clever preaching, but rather preaches plainly and clearly about Jesus because he wants, he's the one they want him to remember. Paul is the ultimate foolish preacher. So the power of the cross can shine through. Well, before we close... Let's ask one final question. We've seen that Paul is the, the foolish preacher in his manner, in his demeanour, in his content. But why does Paul preach so plainly? Well, I think we've covered some of that, but let me just make one last point. The last point why Paul does preach so plainly, so foolishly in the eyes of the world, is because otherwise he might actually put his reader's faith or his listener's faith at risk. Look there in verse 5. I did not come with wise or persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. You see, he doesn't want people's faith to rest on human wisdom but rather on God's power. In chapter 1 verse 17, the very reason he didn't preach the gospel with wisdom and eloquence was because he might empty the cross of its power and finally we now see how that could work. I mean, you can imagine a person, can't you, who was converted under the ministry of a very impressive, wise preacher, but who then, maybe years later, begins to doubt their faith and whether it was really genuine. At some point, that person may be led to ask themselves, well, why did I actually become a Christian? Was it because I believed the Gospel? Or was it just because I was persuaded by a great speaker? Now, if you're converted under the ministry of a very impressive preacher, well, that could be quite clouded for you. Why did I believe? Is it really because of who Jesus is or did I just get swept up by the hype? But if you're converted under the ministry of a plain preacher, well, you'll have no room for that doubt. Not to sound rude, the preacher just simply won't have been good enough to hoodwink you like that. Now, does this mean that there's no room for, for want of a better word, craft in preaching at all? Is this passage some kind of a free kick to preachers around the world to be boring or sloppy or long-winded? That all sermons need to be dull or only ever very basic? Absolutely not. These verses, I'm afraid to say, are actually the favourite verses of bad preachers. Bad preachers love these verses because they think it gives them an excuse to be bad. Boring, lazy, poorly presented. But that's not what he's saying. 
There is absolutely a place for craft in preaching and any kind of Bible teaching, whatever you're involved in. Using illustrations to make your sermon clear and engaging. Using rhetoric to convince people of the truth of the Gospel. Absolutely make no mistake, boring preaching is bad preaching. Because anyone who can make Jesus boring either hasn't understood who Jesus is in the first place or certainly shouldn't be paid to talk about him. Jesus was not crucified for being boring. Jesus was crucified because he was altogether too interesting. If as preachers we dumb him down or make him dull, that's a problem. But what it is saying is that rhetoric and illustrations and craft should serve the gospel, not overshadow it. The role of persuasion is to lay the truth bare, not to serve as a substitute for truth. We've all heard, I've certainly given, illustrations which are so vivid that they're all you understand and remember at the end of the sermon. I, have still, I still remember a sermon I gave uh, when I was a bit younger, not that I'm old now, um, uh, which I won't go into the gory details, but it involved Palm Sunday, a donkey, and me as a child poking it somewhere in its anatomy with a palm frond. Well, there you go. Maybe that's all you remember now of today. But that's all, people said, oh, yeah, that's right, the donkey sermon. People still talk to me ten years later about the donkey sermon. No, no, no. Don't distract people like that. You can still be very clever and still very clear. I mean, the example that I gave you of Spurgeon's great quote then was a great example, wasn't it? I mean, you might actually say, well, hold on, Spurgeon, you made your point about not being flowery, but goodness me, you were pretty flowery as you made it. Now, of course he was. But did you get his point? It was crystal clear, wasn't it? That's because he knew how to use rhetoric to serve his point, not to overpower it. No, we can use rhetoric. We just can't rely on it. You can have both cleverness and clarity, but I tell you what, according to Paul, if you ever had to choose between the two, you would choose clarity every time. You know, there's nothing wrong in itself with having celebrity preachers. God, in his grace, has given some people really quite extraordinary gifts in preaching. And it shouldn't surprise us when the rest of us recognise those facts and pay attention to them as a result. People like Don Carson or Tim Keller or John Piper, I'm just mentioning three, you can fill in your own names, have done enormous good for the gospel through their preaching. And the more people who can hear that preaching and know about those preachers, the better, I reckon, but the key thing here for us is that we mustn't know about them because they're we must know about them because they're good at what they do, not because they're celebrities. When we link into that podcast, our favourite website, we must be doing so because of how good they are at enlightening my mind about the truths of the cross, inspiring my passions with the glories of the cross, emboldening my will with the ramifications of the cross. I must follow those preachers in my podcast precisely because they point so effectively away from themselves. But that's so often not how I do it. I pay more attention to the preacher than the preached. You know, I look at the conference that might be coming up this year and I want to know who's in the lineup 
oh, they're speaking again, almost like it's a music festival. Or I believe anything they say simply because of who they are rather than still bring it back to the scriptures. Or I might listen far more to my podcasts during the week than to the preacher at my church on Sunday who does not preach nearly as well as my internet favourite but who prays for me and worries about me and loves me. Or I start to listen to preaching more for its style than for what is said. I become a connoisseur of preaching whose eye is constantly on the stopwatch to see if he'll go for 25 minutes today as I hope he will rather than 27. Where the preacher could half expect me rather than to go home cut to the heart to rather hold up a scorecard at the end of the sermon. How many of us have gone home on a Sunday afternoon to a lunch of roast preacher? I've done it. We've all done it. Beware of celebritising preachers. Beware of relying on great preachers too much in your own circles. Perhaps you're someone who has a really very great preacher in your church. Like they are just top quality. That is a great blessing and use them, won't you? Absolutely use them. But remember with a great preacher there is also a temptation to rely on them rather than on the cross. You see, it's easy to think, isn't it, sometimes, well, we've got a top-flight preacher, well, then we'll automatically win converts and grow the church. There's no guarantee of that. It's not the preacher who converts people, but the Holy Spirit applying the truth of the Gospel to people's lives. The cross is the power of God, not your preacher or any preacher. And so surely if we really care about our church and we care about our preachers, we will be soaking them and soaking ourselves in prayer that the Holy Spirit would use them to convince people of the truth of the Gospel. Friends, I want to ask you, when your, when your Bible study leader is leading your Bible study or your Sunday school leader is preparing to teach your children or when your pastor or pastors are about to hop up into the pulpit, will you say a prayer for them? And if you're a preacher, will you be humble enough to Ask others to pray for you. I mean, some people, some preachers, it's really easy to remember to pray for, isn't it? Because they so obviously need it. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Phil Ninnis, who's the pastor of a Baptist church down in Hobart, uh, went to visit a church in the southern states of America. And it was just, it was the classic black, African, awesome church. You know, it was like white weatherboard, fans going around in a circle, just absolutely hot as an oven, um, swaying choir up there and really involved congregation. None of this Anglo-Saxon reserve for them. Oh no, absolutely. They, the preacher was getting instantaneous feedback. When he was going really well, people would call out, preach it brother, or they'd start praying, praise you Jesus, preach it, that's great. The problem was when he was going so badly, they'd do the same thing. <laughs> Help him now Jesus. <laughs> he needs you. Our brother's struggling. Help him now. I mean, how do you feel as a preacher being prayed for publicly like that? Well, now, we might not shout out in our heads when a preacher who is struggling in the pulpit does that, but we've done it in our heads, haven't we? When the weaker preacher comes up into the pulpit, 
you say a silent prayer in your head that he doesn't muck it up. It is easy to remember to pray for the poor Bible teacher. Much harder to remember to pray for the gifted Bible teacher. But they need it just as much. You see, it's so important to understand that. Because do you know what's happening when you hear the Bible read and explained on a Sunday? You are hearing the Word of God. It's not just the Bible reading that is the Word of God. The sermon is the Word of God. Now, let me be really clear. The sermon is not infallible. The words of the sermon are not the words of God. Only the Bible is that. Only the Bible is the Word of God, God's message, conveyed in the words of God, the infallible packaging of that message. You can never say that about a sermon. They are not the words of God, they are just the words of a human which can be wrong and according to 1 Thessalonians 5 need to be tested. But a sermon is still the word of God. That is, it is the message of God, it is the gospel. When a preacher or someone giving a kid's talk or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader accurately announces, explains, illustrates and applies the gospel to the extent that they do that, It is not just a preacher talking to you, but God himself. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is a deed and work in you who believe. And that is happening every Sunday morning and evening when you listen to a faithful sermon or hear a great kid's talk. God is the preacher at your church. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It could be John Piper, it could be Reverend Stodgy. No, God is speaking to you from the pulpit, in the gospel, through the preacher. Do we feel the weight of that? Do we understand how powerful the gospel is when it is preached faithfully? Annie Dillard puts it this way, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offence. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. That's the power of preaching. Not in great oratory. Not in great preachers. But in the plain exposition of the cross. Because the cross is the 
power of God. I think it's a really exciting time to be a, a Christian in Tasmania. I know it's not easy. It's not easy for you, it's not easy for me. But I see great signs under God of reason for encouragement. God's keeping his promises. People are coming under the sound of the gospel and they're becoming Christians in twos and threes, in dribs and drabs, sometimes in clumps. Praise God for the clumps, but praise God for the ones and twos too. Our church is slowly growing. I've only been in Tasmania, well, I've only been in sort of church circles in Tasmania for 20 years, but I think even in my brief lifetime, I think we're getting better at teaching the Bible. I think there's been a resurgence of expository Bible teaching. There's a huge opportunity and that is fantastic. The question is, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to rely on to see Tasmania one for Christ? Well, none of those things, just the cross, by all means, use a good website. By all means, preach and teach well, but rely on none of them. Because in the end, the gospel's foolish to the world. And so are churches and so are its preachers. But it's in that foolishness that God has given the gospel its greatest power. So never be afraid to rely on the cross and the cross alone for your success. Because it's in the cross that is the power of God to save sinners. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us all these things to use and only one thing to rely on, the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. Father, we thank you that he has promised to build his church and that he is and he is doing it by taking ordinary people, some extraordinary, but most of us ordinary, and he's showing us our sin and he's showing us our salvation. And by your spirit, you're drawing Tasmanians like us into your family. Father, we pray that that would be what we put our confidence in as we go out tomorrow and next week and this month and for the rest of the year and for the rest of our lives as we seek to see Tasmania transformed for Christ. That we would put the cross and the power of the gospel at the forefront of all of our ministry. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.